Hi, this is Marshall Toplansky. And Joel Kotkin. And welcome to the Feudal Future podcast. If you're listening, it means you're interested in creating a better future, one that values diverse discussion and preserves opportunity for the middle and working classes. This is why we started the show, to bring together ideas and people that challenge the notion of a hierarchical, socially stagnant, and centrally programmed future. Maybe you've experienced the rising costs of home ownership, diminishing job prospects, or the burden of over-regulation and increasingly censorship. This is happening in cities everywhere, and we recognize the need for new action. For this reason, we created the Beyond Feudalism Facebook group, a place for you to connect and share resources with like-minded people. Here you'll be able to ask questions, network, and share your own stories and ideas on how we can bring opportunity and common sense back into our civil discourse and governance. Consider this a hub for all things feudal, where we'll be sharing insights from our recent Beyond Feudalism report with Chapman University, clips and highlights from the podcast, and links to related content on topics such as housing, education, energy, transportation, and entrepreneurship. Much of our focus has been so far on California, but we expect to see this work and apply this work to conditions around the world. Well, as you could probably tell, we're not too excited about the path we're currently on as a society, but we are hopeful for what's possible. And if we can better understand what's happening and build momentum to overcome the trends, so much the better. So we encourage you to join the Facebook group via the link below to get involved and keep up-to-date information on all new developments. And for more information, my new book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, outlines everything that's happening and where we need to change. The link to that is also in the show description. So thank you very much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. But it raises the question, what is capitalism itself going to look like in the next four years? And when I was doing the interview the other day with the uh, the Wall Street Journal guy, he asked me that question. I said, look, in many ways, the most important election is 2024. It's not this one. This is Joel Kotkin. And this is Marshall Toplansky. And you're listening to the Feudal Future Podcast. Our society is being rapidly reduced to a feudal state, a process now being exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Millions of small businesses are near extinction. Millions more are losing their jobs, and many others will be stuck in the status of propertyless serfs. The big winners have been the expert class of the clerisy, and most of all, the tech oligarchs who benefit as people rely more on algorithms than human relationships. With this, around the world, the middle class is becoming more squeezed than ever. And it's having profound economic, social, and spiritual implications. Here on the show, we're having conversations with business, government, and citizen leaders like you to get to the core of these issues and explore how we can work together to form a better future than the one we're headed towards. 
Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And we are delighted today to have John Russo with us. John is the author of a famous book called Steeltown USA. He's a visiting scholar at the Kalmanovitz uh, Institute at Georgetown University and spent most of his academic career at Youngstown State in Ohio, cataloging the uh, the plight of the middle class and the working class in America. John, welcome. It's great to be here, guys. I know you just spent the last five uh, months in Youngstown. Uh, you consider that your hometown, I assume? Yes, I do. I live in D.C., but my home is in Youngstown. So everyone knows Ohio is the game. You know, uh, whoever wins Ohio is most likely to win the presidency. And you've written recently that uh, Donald Trump is in big trouble in Ohio, at which he won fairly handily last time. What's changed? Well, let me just, my career as a pundit is a, a little bit checkered. I started out in, in November of 20, uh, yeah, 2011 when Obama was behind. And I said, wrote a piece for the New York Times that said Obama's going to win Ohio. So my career rocketed. <laughs> with that. And then, you know, in uh, December of uh, 2015, I, I did a couple interviews and that said that Trump was going to win Ohio. And I could just see it. And nobody really believed it until when the primaries in the Youngstown area showed that 6,000 Democrats had crossed party lines to register and 20,000 people who had never voted or hadn't voted recently, registered. And, of course, the Democratic Party in Ohio was very angry at me for mm-hmm. writing such a you know thing, and they asked me to write something else, so I wrote something for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the major newspaper in, in Ohio, what Hillary has to do to, to win Ohio and working people. They, of course, paid no attention to that at all. And uh, even right to the end, a lot of the pundits and and pollsters who are my friends here in D.C., I see them, and didn't believe it was going to happen until it actually happened, and certainly not by eight points where Trump really uh, beat Clinton. And and the key thing about that was the politics of resentment. There's a long history of resentment toward the Democratic Party that was building since uh, 1992, when community groups and labor unions and everybody got out to vote to vote for Clinton, and within inside of two years, you had NAFTA welfare reform, you know, at all. And so Hillary was carrying a lot of baggage with her to do that. So I go back to Youngstown every summer for three, four months, and so I sort of chronicled, you know, what was happening in 2018, where I saw. And I asked the question, I think I, must, I might have published this one in New Geography, you know, was the fever breaking in Youngstown? And my sense of it was, it was cooling, but was not fully broken at that point. Trump uh, continued to come back to the Youngstown area three times uh, since he was elected. It was called ground zero for Trump in uh, many uh, journals and papers. But when I went back this time, get back to where Joel's question, I found a lot of disillusionment. Disillusionment in a lot of different areas, and, but to document it during the COVID was not all that easy to do. And uh, I started writing it 
uh, in March, and then COVID really hit, and I stopped it because one of the things I was saying, I knew the demographic changes were going to have an impact. Ohio is, you know, becoming more educated. It's it has an older white population, but that is declining, and the working class itself, who's it, as Rui Teixeira has said, a pollster, is declining by about two percent a year just be demographically. So I got all the demographic work and it's it, all of this, by the way, is linked in the American prospect piece, why Trump is going to lose Ohio. But I was having more trouble trying to figure out when I talked to religious people and I made some cold calls down to Cincinnati area and the crossroads church, which is this 40,000 person church complex in Cincinnati and part of Northern Kentucky and part of Indiana and uh, southern parts of Ohio. And there was a, a general uneasiness, but nobody was going to say, you know, we don't support Trump, which was a sense because they'd gotten everything that they wanted from Trump. They got it in terms of the abortion. The Catholic Church, Catholics felt the same way. You know, his approach to abortion was theirs. And the, the Jewish community said they got what they wanted with Tekum Alam, even though they believe in Tekum Alam, they, what they did was they got Israel. So there was all these religious groups that got pretty much what they wanted from Trump, but there was this angst. And finally, I got, saw an, uh, an op-ed piece by a leader of the Crossroads Church saying that it was evangelicals had been bamboozled. And they became a one-issue love affair. I then, so, and I started writing, part of this was not in the story. My sense is that the religious leaders saw their kids weren't going to church. And there was a good sense of hypocrisy. Religious people are good people. I'm not, you know, I'm not, it's, I'm not one of those guys who poo-poos them and knocks them down. But they, and they believe in the social gospel if you're Protestant, evangelical. If you're Catholic, you believe in Catholic social teaching. And if you're Jewish, Takuma Lama is part of their religious beliefs. And I think their kids were telling them, you know, this is hypocrisy. We don't really believe that. And then the final thing that really capped it, and I, somebody called me about, do you know anything about Operation Grant? Never heard of it. <laughs> and, and I said, what is Operation Grant? I said, well, it's based on uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who was from Ohio. And who it was is the Lincoln Project had funded this Operation Grant, which was Republicans who were going to vote for Biden. Not, you know, or, excuse me, that's not exact. They're not going to vote for Trump. They would made it, it's, they would make it very clear they are Republicans. <laughs> They're always going to be Republicans, but, and then that played into the schism within the Ohio Republican Party, where you had Matt Borges, the state Republican Party chairman, and who's arguably the most successful party chairman uh, in the United States, and was up for being the head of the National Republican Party, who was ousted after the 2016 election by the conservatives. And uh, so on one side in the Republican Party, you had DeWine and, and his group, and, and Kasich, Who's, who had re resigned by that or retired by that time or left office. And on the other hand, you had Jim Jordan and you had Jane Timpton and the other sort of crazies, as I call them. Okay. And that's how they, and they called them. 
I mean, there's a lot of people that Republicans call them crazies. And that schism is deep. Hmm. You know, all you need to do is read a little bit about Kasich's comments and you get an idea. So all that led me to the, the belief that Trump was going to lose Ohio. And it wasn't so much because of Biden. It was because of him and his his policies, his behavior. I think we mentioned earlier disillusionment with that apparatus and his use of language and his political uh, whole demeanor. So he polarized, but he ended up just polarizing the party and yeah. what had had been kind of a reliable, normative kind of uh, party just turned into a microcosm of what you see everywhere else, which is just fragmentation. Yeah. And I think that's, but it plays right into that schism that I talked about, about that political parabola. Okay. Yeah. People started dropping down into the, the forms of populism and angry politics uh, that, that I was seeing happening in the country. And so, which leads to a very, you know, difficult question. What happens if Biden wins? Exactly. What are, what are the what are the politics going to be? And, and what's it, what's it going to look like? Is there going to be? Will there be people coming together? I don't know, Marshall, but <laughs> I can tell you what I see happening here. One of the guys in the building that I live in works for the uh, now for the American Enterprise Institute. He had been from part of more conservative, you know, and I was talking to him yesterday and. It was very clearly that AEI and Brookings are doing a lot more things together. There's a sense, I think Joel and I had that conversation. Right. That there's a fear that they're be, in their own way, they're becoming marginalized. Aspen's sort of off a little bit in trying a lot of grassroots, home, you know, the economic development issues in their own way. But my sense of it is that if you just want to look at the big guys, they're starting to worry. And I think they are very worried. But it raises the question, what is capitalism itself going to look like in the next four years? And when I was doing the interview the other day with the, New York, uh, the Wall Street Journal guy, he asked me that question. And I said, look, in many ways, the most important election is 2024. It's not this one. Is that because right now everything is yes, no, Trump, and we're not talking about anything else? I think that's part of it. But I just think it's a general part of the decline of what's in the United States. The final question the guy asked me is, well, who do you think is going to win? You know, I, I, even though I've, I said it's really not an election between Trump and Biden. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I think this election is about the American people and what it's going to mean for their future and their sort of current attitude. So, well, and also, you know, I, I, by the way, I agree with you on this. It's as much about the demographic shift to the non baby boomer group. That is your story about the evangelicals. Yes. Is really interesting that the kids of the evangelicals are saying, Hey, you know, this whole charity notion that you guys are espousing is complete hogwash. You're not living it. Those values are instilled. I see them in my students, right? There's a tremendous social consciousness, in a sense, yeah. 
amongst those people, and they want it to be real. And they believe that they've been sold down the river. So this is an election where, for the first time, the influence of that younger group will be starting to displace old people like us. I think that's right. And I say that in, in the piece in the American Prospect. I looked at, you know, how many new registered voters there are. And there's around 902,000 people who had not voted in 2016. So they're going to be new voters, of which at least 250,000, you know, between 18 and 21. That's a large cohort of new voters coming in there. And if we're right, I mean, in the past, we, we haven't been right on this, Marshall. The younger people vote has not been terribly different from the regular one. But there is a sense, and I'm with you 100%, that there is a change occurring. And that's going to be seen. I mean, the, the newspapers say, well, they're more liberal, they're more this, they're more that. But there, there's, there's a different type of consciousness. And maybe it has to do with their future and what they think is possible. And are they going to do as good as their parents? All those types of things. Well, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, when I talk with conservative groups and I'm, you know, trying to get something going where we would have this dialogue, you know, one of the things that I say to them is if you have a generation who thinks they're never going to buy a house, they're never going to start a business, they're never going to do as well as their parents, why not vote for Bernie Sanders? Why not vote for a free fill in the blank given that you'll never achieve it yourself. And, you know, that's why I've, you know, been particularly chastising the libertarians who are in favor of wiping out single family zoning and, you know, sort of, you know, strangling the suburbs. I said, well, where do you think your voters are going to come from? You know, I mean, if everybody's living in a one bedroom apartment, you know, and uh, living on a rent subsidy, they're not going to vote Republican. I mean, that's just the way the world works. And uh, and you can tell because those areas that are heavily renter tend to vote overwhelmingly Democratic. But the question I have is, and, you know, I remember I, I sent you an email and, I, and you scolded me about calling Biden a progressive. So is your sense that a conflict in the Democratic Party, given that Biden, when I read his history, he's a corporate Democrat. So is Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris is a little hip, cool corporate as opposed to old school corporate, but they're both corporate. How are they going to deliver to to working class people who are against monopolies, against uh, policies where the rich get richer? Do you see that that conflict playing out in the next four years? Of course. And I think that's part of what I'm saying is that the, the challenge politically in the next four years is what's it going to look like by 2024 and what policies are going to be available to them. A, they're not going to be very many given the trillions of dollars debt that we now have, unless you really do tax the rich in ways that Biden has suggested, but then you're going to lose part of the democratic party because that's where the, the, the cash comes from. So that there are limits to, to that. So you'll probably see some incremental things that will try to be done. They'll probably maybe expand health care if they can, uh, a little broader. But there there are limits to what they're going to be able to do financially and then politically because of some of the people who they're indebted to. So I just feel, Joel, that it's 
it's going to be a very difficult time. And even if they do do something, even if they do, they got a Supreme Court. They could overrule a lot of it. So what would so you I, say? I think, there, I, I think there is, I don't want to be inflammatory, but there is a type of incipient rebellion that's developing. It's an undercurrent. I don't think that, I'm not just talking about the, the guys in Michigan who, you know, there, there is something going on here. And on, on the right and the left, right? On the right and the left. But that's what I'm, you know, that, that if you think and understand that political parabola, it's a lot, the right and the left at the populisms are much closer together than the guys at the top of that parabola. And, and, and there is resentment from the bottom toward the top. And all the ways that you've written about and talked about in, in, in your, your new book. So it's, you know, I'm just, it's really interesting just to sort of try to play that out. And my son asked me that. He's a, he's a professor too at, at Catholic University here. And what I think is going to happen. And I said, I don't necessarily like what's going to happen for your generation. He's 44, 45 right now. And what that's going to look, what this is all going to look like in 20 years. And then the other disturbing thing that I ha that happened back in, in Youngstown is my neighbors said to me, hey, really good guy, liberal, I'm getting a gun. And that's one thing to hear, you know, gun sales go up in the election years. But to hear this guy palpably say that he's worried and he wants to protect his property. Who is he worried about? He's worried about the right. Okay. I don't know where you come out on this, but the right wing white white supremacist people are 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 really dangerous. Antifada, it's like the FBI director said, is just an idea out there. It's not a lot of people around that, but there are a lot of people that come out of white supremacist sort of background, neo Nazis. So I'm worried too, but I'm not going to go out and get a gun and. But it was interesting. I'm just different people said, well, if things get bad, where would you go? Would you stay in Youngstown or would you stay in D.C.? I said, D.C., because D.C. is safer. You know? But so Dale Meharage, who you, I don't know if you know his work. Dale uh, won a Pulitzer Prize in the 90s, along with Mike Williamson, who's a, now the chief photographer at the Washington Post. And after... 9-11, he was living in New York. He's a journalism professor at uh, Columbia. And everybody was coming to New York after 9-11. He got in his car and spent four months in the Midwest and wrote a book called Homeland. And as part of that book, it interviewed me. And I, he said, what does this seem like to you? And I said, it's kind of like feeling like we're in the Weimar Republic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, and so I and I said, especially in the Midwest, that book is pretty interesting, given 15 years later, 16 years later. Well, let me just push back a little bit on on what you said. I, you know, look, obviously, since Marshall and I are, are both Jewish, uh, we the white supremacists are not exactly our favorite group. Well, and my wife's Jewish. So <laughs> they're and, not and, high in this household. And I'm just a poor, you know, agnostic. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't like either. <laughs> but but there, I think there is also a lot of fear, and I bet this is generating more of the gun sales from you know 
small business people who are worried. I mean, I hear that. Now, that's my constituency. If I, I would say, who do I identify with? Who do I think is critical? Is this yeah, you know, yeah. small, you know, the small capitalists, you know, which Lenin identified as the real problem because the big capitalists, we all can, we can all hate together, but it's hard to, hard, hard to hate the guy. Who, the petty bourgeoisie, right? Right. You know, yeah. the, the guy with the, with, with the taco stand or my, you know, um, or my, my uh, Indian friend who, who, is at, yeah, of course, who of course. Yeah. owns the UPS and can't get any support. So the question I have is, it seems to me that this fear is, you know, is not just, I mean, look, the media is going to push the right wing because that's their thing. And the right's going to push Antifa. I think the danger is the combination of the two. That's what makes it Weimar. What made Weimar Weimar is that the, the communists and the Nazis were battling it out on the streets and, and basically telling, okay, which one do you want? You want this group of, of authoritarians or that group of authoritarians? But, but that's and, your, the essence of your parabola theory is exactly that, right? right? That the, the, it's not, it, the venom is on the right and on the left. The emotional power is not in the middle. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. But I did an interview and somebody asked me about that. Don't you think that this will sort of work its way out? And I said, well, you should ask the, uh, the German and Italian communists how it worked right. out. When you say, when they say, because they, they argue, the argument at the time is the worse it gets, the better it gets. Right. And well, my response was, the worse it gets, the worse it can get. Right. And it really, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, but, the, you know, the old rather than looking at a, Hitler us. Right. But rather than looking at an apocalyptic vision of, of the next <laughs> the next decade, if you were to say, okay, and I, I buy your argument that the decimation of the financial system with this debt that has come in is going to make the options quite limited in terms of what policies can be put into place. What's the top three? What are the top policy initiatives and priorities of the Biden administration? Well, I think the first one is to sort of fix what's already happened, okay? And you can't underestimate the parts of the deregulation of, you know, environmental stuff. I mean, I know Joe and I probably disagree on part of that, but I think the degradation of government as we know it or have known it, that's got to be part of it. I think the big issue that in many ways is an overlay to this is technology and technological change and technological displacement. And a lot of the worries already the technology people Joel would call them the technology oligarchs that are worried. And that's why all these uh, synergy summits and things have been going on because they're really worried, you know, what happens when the types of displacements and technology replaces. And then the, the issue switches to, well, do we have basic incomes? Do we, you know, what is, is, is there an extension of the forms of welfare programs that we already have, okay? And people on the right and on the left agree. I, I can go to the Cato Institute and hear a lecture on the importance of basic income. 
Well, it's Milton Friedman's idea. <laughs> yes, of course it is. Of right. course, they say at the same time, we want to take care of all the other welfare programs and end them and just give money, people money and let's call it a day. And on the left, people want, you know, basic incomes for survival. And so there is this, a type of, okay, what's going to happen here? And uh, it doesn't talk about the nature of capitalism as we know it. I keep telling you, that you get old and you get these old war stories. It was in the 19, it was 2012. One of the final things I did uh, when I was at Youngstown State, one of the editors for the Financial Times came through and was asking questions. And he had just spent 10 years in China. And he'd come back and written a book. And I happened to have it on my desk, you know. I, I didn't know who it was, you know, at that time. He said, yeah, you see that? All right. So when we started talking about that. And I said, he asked, well, what do you think the future of capitalism is? And I said, well, my sense is that, is that neoliberal capitalism has lost its energy and is gone. Keynesian economic philosophy is gone, you know, in disrepute is the way I said it. And so the thing about capitalism, it evolves. And I said, my suspect, it's going to look more and more like China, mm. where you're going to have economic freedom, but you're not going to have democracy. And if you think about that for a second and try to feel a sense about the trends, there is a certain current of truth in that. You know, and you don't have to just look at the United States or China. You can look all through Europe and you can see that same thing happening. And, and interestingly enough, I was down at the German embassy last year sometime. <laughs> Everything seems so far in the past now. And we were talking to one of the people from the Social Democratic Party in, in, in Germany. And we were talking about this. And he said, we're really feeling that hmm. happening right now in Germany. So that brings us to the technological question. I think that's going to be, have to be dealt with. And that's going to be a difficult problem unless the right and the left get together and the Democrats and Republicans get together and deal with it. I, I think that's one of the challenges that Joel's trying to challenge people to think about. Well, because one yeah. of the things that it seems to yeah. me in the technological challenge, and of course we're California, we're sort of at the epicenter of that, mm -hmm. is that the more that the tech economy is embedded and dominated by few companies, you get, you get start you get IPOs, but you get very high level. But the grassroots entrepreneurial economy doesn't start doesn't uh, grow. You know, it, you think about if if an Instagram or a Skype or you know LinkedIn, if these companies were independent companies with their own profiles and their own internal development, we would be much better off as a user of computers. You know that. Really, has Microsoft improved Windows at all in the last 10 years? Is Google search any better than it was 10 years ago? I don't see any evidence of it. So I think the big problem, what I would imagine is going to be a conflict, is the Warren Sanders and the conservative groups who are saying, these guys are too powerful, they have too much control, and the fact that Kamala Harris in particular is their tool. And they're going to have a real problem with that, I think, in this administration. Yeah, I think there's going to, there's going to be more pressure from the left. But in many ways, there's one 
person said down at Brookings, there's this, this is the last chance for the Democratic Party. Now, this guy was more to the left, you know, yeah. and he's saying, all right, we shut up, you know, during the, you know, pretty early in the campaign, actually much earlier than I shot that when uh, Sanders got out, but, and everybody got in line and everybody's pushing because Trump is so terrible. And I'm sure they think there's going to be a quid pro quo for that support. But will they get it? And to what degree will they get it? I don't know. If somebody, you know, Marshall doesn't know this, but Joel does. I do a lot of work with labor unions I have in the past, not so much lately. And labor unions have historically lined up behind the Democratic Party. That's not true much longer because the building trades are very much aligned now with the Republicans. But one question they'd always ask is, Dr. Russo, why why haven't we got labor law reform? Is it just too many Republicans? I said in 1964, there was a Democratic House, Democratic President, Democratic Senate. Did you get labor law reform? No. And I said in 1977, you had Democratic President, Democratic House, Democratic Senate. Did you get labor law reform? No. I said in 1992. Yeah, Democratic president, Democratic House, Democratic Senate. Did you get labor law reform? No. Hmm. I said, well, what does that say about the Democratic Party? Are they well, going to be your best? Look at this election with California's Proposition 22, where they're, you know, it's basically a referendum on reducing the power of unions and increasing people's ability to be independent contractors. Sure. In essence, reversing the law that was passed. I think it's most, at least the polls that I'm seeing, showing that 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 is actually winning, that most people are rejecting the notion of collective bargaining and all of the history that we've, we've, you know, went through in the industrial era to be able to be entrepreneurs and self-reliant. So I think that this will be very interesting to see if that actually prevails, but um, it could be it has huge implications for the historic base of the Democratic Party. Absolutely. And it, but it's, it is a play on the, what's, what was the Reagan line? A thousand points of light? You're going to unleash all this? In, in, in Youngstown, I saw so much of this between 1980 and 2000. There was a type of bootstrap journalism. Okay? We got to unleash all this energy. We want to get out and do your entrepreneurial thing. And that didn't work. They often didn't have access to capital. That you know, it's not because they had bad management skills. In the business school, we have tons of students and retrainees and people coming through. But it just didn't. They didn't have the resources to make it happen. Some of the ideas were obviously off the wall, and they were changing so quickly. I think that we had a lot of these training programs in the late nineteen eighties to retrain all these steel workers in various types of computer repairs that lasted about two years until you could just slip in a new circuit board okay and you go through and you see that there's a type of evolution that's going on so fast technologically that it's going to make very difficult the types of entrepreneurial initiatives that i know joel talks a lot about but it's it's out there okay and the and i i think there's I don't know how you say this, is that a lot of people are going to have to suspend their disbelief to make a real goal in the ways that Joel talks about and a lot of other economic development people talk about. 
Yeah, so what you're saying really is, is that the definition of what it means to be working class is actually going to be quite different when labor is not the capital, data is the capital. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, that's, that's really really interesting. I think it's going to be very difficult. I mean, you can, I mean, I, I talked to a bunch of auto workers, most of the ones that hadn't been shipped out someplace else from GM Lordstown, because Lordstown is right next to Youngstown. And they ask you, well, what are we going to do? Well, it's not that they're dumb. I mean, these guys, I mean, the, my students, my auto worker students, you got to remember, I was an automaker 55 years ago. When, <laughs> it was a long time ago when I was working on a bill plant in Lansing. They were really smart. The ones I had at Lordstown, you know, a lot of them had master's degrees and other degrees, and they got to work in the plant, made a good living. You know, or, or life got in the way that you, somebody got pregnant and they had to go to work in the plant and do stuff like that. They're really smart people and their, their uh, leisure activities were doing were amazing what they did. I love them. And my, in many ways, they were my contemporaries. And they were certainly making more money than I was <laughs> as a university professor in Northeast Ohio. <laughs> and so, but the question is, well, they're losing their economic base now. And they're too late. They're too old. What is it? It's the line too, too old to work and too young to die. And so you have a lot of people out there that are sort of suffering and angry. And that anger is displaced all over the place. One question I asked, and you guys will understand it better than anybody else. I said, well, who caused all this? It's actually a small group of steelworkers. And he says, well, first they came after, you know, they came after our wages and benefits, then they came after our plants, and then they came after our pensions, and then they came after our housing. And I said to them, well, who are they? And they said, Wall Street. And then under somebody's breath said, Jews. Okay? And it's a fluid barriers between race, ethnicity, and it's sort of a permeable membrane. Yep. And when you have no way out, it's easy to switch into a different type of consciousness. Externalize the blame. But it is, I mean, there's, I agree that Wall Street had a lot to do with it, but, you, you know, blame Wall Street. There's a lot going on. I mean, these leveraged buyouts and who benefited from that? Did the overall economy actually do better? That was the what we were told was going to happen. It didn't happen. Well, it look, happened John, for somebody. Don't be giving me for somebody. What, it's clear that your observation that we're at a point where the polarization is greater than at any time in American history. This is the legacy that Biden is going to need to have to deal with. And whether he has the, whether he has the skill or anybody has the skill is going to be the very interesting open question for the next four years. I think you're absolutely right, Marshall, but let me try to put that in the context of what Joel has said. I'm sorry. I use my hands. I'm Italian. Just like, I see you guys in the picture. How do people sort of see, you know, where they have some sort of possibility? How will they see that they can maintain their current sense of community? Okay. And I'm not sure they can see any particular way to that. I was, Jerry and I were asked, invited to come to the World Bank headquarters here in D.C. and talk to a group of 
economists on a project that they were working on about coal mining areas around the country and in Poland and in South Africa and in Germany. And there was sort of a, a we tried to talk about them, the, the situations and what might be done. And one economist said, we should just get up and move them to other parts of the country. Sherry, who's the, the cultural studies person of the family, was levitating and just said, That's, you've got to be kidding me. How could you guys even think something like that? And because they're short of solutions, they asked, well, give me one. I said, well, there's a lot of reclamation that has to be done. And by the way, isn't that what's happening in Germany with their mining communities? Aren't they doing a lot of reclamation? And I said, so I think that's going to be part of it. But where, where you guys sort of questions sort of meet is in the right and the left, the left within the Democratic Party. The, sort of, the street talk about that is they owe us. We supported Biden. We need to see things. This is just like we always get the Democrats in. They said, oh, we have to go to the middle of the road. We have to incremental change. Republicans get in and they wipe the board. And so now there's a sense that there is a, a type of owing for their support. And uh, so it's going to be very difficult because the Democrats are caught between that, the debt that they owe the left and the debt they usually owe to the Wall Street in terms of get electability, getting money for elections. So I know this is kind of far-fetched from... Well, it'll be, it'll, be very about, it'll be very interesting to see, but I can say this definitively. We owe you a great debt for spending the time with us today. Oh, God. This was just great. I mean, I, I, could, I feel like we could just continue this conversation for hours. Unfortunately, we can't. But thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts and uh, let's let's keep our fingers crossed that uh, we can we can create some unity and some positive uh, outcomes from this election. Let's hope so. Huh? Thanks. Take care, you John. Take care, thank Paul. you very much. Bye.